Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. We're continuing our walk through the lives and stories of Elijah and Elisha. And today we come to um, what seems like a mere footnote in what's about to take place in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 17, we see him in the presence of a widow, while in 1 Kings chapter 18 is him on Mount Carmel taking on the prophets of Baal. And yet, as we'll see, this is far more than just an intro story. This is far more than just a footnote to the battle that will take place on Mount Carmel. But this is, in fact, where the battle is taking place. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's word found in 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 8, going through the end of the chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that is Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of oil was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord is in, your, in your mouth is truth. Thus ends God's word. Let's go to him once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it is life, and it is our light, Lord, and it is truth. Father, we pray that we would see our life, our light, and our truth in it this morning. Send your spirit, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to imagine, Jesus Christ held within it. Father, we pray for his sake and in his name. Amen. Well, it's a great lie that all of us have fallen prey to. It's a lie that began many centuries ago and has become a bedrock foundation for Western society. 
And it's become such a part of our lives that we don't even know it's there. We don't even know it is a question to ask. And the lie that we've been told, that we've been had the, the, the fog that we've had cast over our eyes, is that we can divide the religious and the regular, the sacred and the secular, that in our public and our private lives, we can cordon off religion and politics, and both of those from everything else, especially at the dinner table. And, but however, the lie that this is telling us disconnects what we know to be true disconnects what our hearts tell us day after day. Because every day when you wake up, as you brush your teeth, as you make breakfast, as you go to work, shop for groceries, watch TV, you are coming face to face with forces that you can neither see nor hear, yet what Paul calls cosmic powers, principalities, spiritual forces, right? And this war, this battle that's taking place around us is after one thing, your heart. It's after what you put your trust in. It's after whom you swear allegiance to. That's the battle waging around us. There is no dividing the religious from the regular because everything affects who or what we worship. In his now famous uh, commencement address to Kenyon College, David Foster Wallace, many of y'all may have heard this speech before called This is Water. It's where he infamously, or not infamously, famously said, everybody worships. But he has a line closer towards the end is where he says, the only choice we get is what to worship. And if you don't choose what to worship, there are kinds of worship, worship of sex, worship of money, worship of power, friends, the list goes on. There are kinds of worships that you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. So what he's saying is whether you choose to worship or not, there are things all around you telling you what to worship. And it's in what you do day after day. It's in how you spend your time day after day. It's in what you let your mind think about day after day. There is a battle raging around us for our hearts, our minds, and our loves. And we see that battle taking place here this morning in 1 Kings chapter 17. There is a battle that rages between not only Judah and the nations, especially Israel, but also Yahweh versus the gods of the nations. In this particular case, Yahweh versus Baal. And as you'll remember from a couple weeks ago when Carl preached, Baal was the god that was introduced by Jezebel the Sidonian wife of Ahab, into God's people of Israel. Baal was, as you may remember, was the storm god for these lands. He was the one who brought the rain, who brought the growth. There's a battle going on of who is actually Lord. 
Who is the one who can bring life? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal? Today in our passage, we're going to see two things. That is, that this battle between Yahweh and Baal belongs to Yahweh. Though you may already know that. And yet, secondly, that this battle between Baal and Yahweh is closer to you than you might think. The battle belongs to the Lord, and yet the battle is closer than you might think. See, our God, who is the Lord and giver of life, he is the only one who can make that claim. And as such, he deserves our faith, our devotion, and our love. And what we're going to do today is we're, we're not going to divide it up into two sections between those two points. We're going to walk through that, this passage and see how these two points, the battle belonging to the Lord and the battle being closer than we think, weave in and out of this story we have before us. So starting off right at the get-go, verse 17, verse 8, we see that Elijah is following the word of the Lord. God calls him up into Zarephath, which is in the land of Sidon. And as I just said, Jezebel was a Sidonian. Right, so God is calling Elijah into enemy territory. He is calling him into the heart of Baal worship. Into the place where supposedly Baal reigns supreme. So now the question becomes, not is Yahweh king of Israel, God of Israel. The question now becomes, is Yahweh Lord of all? Can Yahweh act in the land that's Baal's? Who, as a, to, to have a play on words, who is the true Baal? As Baal is the Hebrew word for Lord or husband. Who is the true Baal? Is it Yahweh? Or is it the storm god? In particular, if you remember, this is in the middle of a drought. Right, so who can in fact bring life in the midst of a drought? The one who supposedly has control over the storms or the one who called life from nothing. And notice that right off the bat, the author shows us Yahweh's, the Lord's, all-encompassing power and sovereignty. The Lord tells Elijah to go to Zarephath for, listen here, behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Go to enemy territory, for I have commanded a widow to feed you. But we will see, and as you may have seen in our story, the, the widow didn't receive an audible call from the Lord, like Elijah. She has no knowledge of being commanded by the Lord. But instead, God had determined, chosen this widow to feed him. What the author of Kings is trying to show us is that even in the land of Baal, the Lord's word was over everything. The Lord's word was over even the hearts, minds, and actions of those who worship Baal. And Elijah goes to Zarephath, and he finds this woman picking up sticks. He asks her for water, which she can give, but then he asks her for bread. And that crosses the line in the midst of this drought. 
And we see when Elijah asks this, the true need that this widow has. She says, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. And all she has is a little flour, a little oil, which she is taking to bake so that she and her son may eat it and die. We see just how needy this woman is. This woman's poverty is more than just not being able to take a yearly vacation. It's not having to choose chicken over steak. Right? It's not about choosing the 07 Cherokee versus the 2020 Cherokee. This woman's poverty was at the point of making the last meal for her and her son. The famine that was upon the land of Israel and all the surrounding regions had taken everything from her. Everything. A level of poverty that few of us will ever know. But Elijah does not relent. He asks again, do not fear. Bring me something first, he says. And with this restatement of his question, he brings with it the promise of God. The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the days that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. In other words, give to me the little that you have, and God will give you far more than you could ever imagine. We've got to put ourselves in her shoes there. Right? This was quite literally perhaps her last meal. The last thing she had before her and her son had their lives taken from them. And yet, in trusting the word of the Lord, this God whom she had only heard of, perhaps, she gives to Elijah. And like the widow's might, this woman out of her poverty gave all that she had, not clinging to Elijah, Right? What, what could he do with the bread that she was going to give him? But instead, she was clinging to the promise of God. And look at the abundance that he gave her. But it was nothing wild, was it not? It was merely flour and oil that would last as long as she needed. It was not a healthy 401k. Right? It was not clothes from Brooks Brothers. But he gave her and her household their daily bread. And not just for a few days, right? Not just for the week or two that Elijah happened to be passing by, but as 18.1 tells us, for at least two full years, they partook of this flour and oil that the Lord had given them. This is the God who can give from nothing. Baal is merely a mockery of the God who can give from a little flour and a little oil. Now, as I said in my intro, that next to chapter 18, this little pit stop in Zarephath seems like a mere blip, right? It's that story that we kind of pass over real quick to get to the exciting part of Elijah taking on the 400 prophets of Baal, right? It's kind of like no one watches Rocky IV for the good acting, right? For the awesome stories. We all watch Rocky IV to get to the end, 
right, when he fights Ivan Drago. That's the good part. That's the exciting part. And surely you think about this story of Elijah in the same way, right, that this is just the, the plotting, the, the, the small stories compared to what's going to happen on Mount Carmel, right, when God finally shows himself. And yet, as one commentator said about chapter 17, that though unstated, the first round of the contest between Yahweh and Baal, which would reach its climax on Mount Carmel, was waged in Zarephath. So the battle that would climax in God defeating the 450 prophets of Baal was waged, was won in the village of Zarephath. And what this tells us is that the battle for our hearts, the battle for our faith and our allegiance does not lie on hilltop experiences. Does not lie in the mountaintop points of life. But the battle for our hearts and our lives wages in the day-to-day. It's those decisions you make when things are at their best and when things are at their worst, which show whether you are for the Lord or for Baal. We like to think that our commitment to God, right, our weekly church service, our reading the Bibles, when we do all the things that good Christians are supposed to do, that that's what makes up our commitment to God. And yet this passage is showing us that it's actually much deeper than you think. It's much deeper than an hour and 15 minutes every Sunday morning or 15-minute devotionals Monday through Friday. It goes deeper into where you choose to spend your time, what you choose to serve. There's an article in the Associated Press News last week titled this, Religious Backers of, of Abortion Rights Say God is on Their Side. This was the, fir- this was the first sentence of that article said it was lunch hour at the abortion clinic, so the nurse in the recovery room got her Bible out of her bag in the closet and began to read. Here's a woman who has made her living butchering and massacring, quite literally, innocent lives. And yet she finds her faith from reading her Bible. See, if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, And the road to hell is also paved with people who read their Bibles every day. Who woke up every Sunday for church. Because some of us who do that, there are often those who do that, who in their day-to-day lives, they show that they were living for another God. And it's easy to think about someone who could go from an abortion room to a closet with the Bible. But how often do we do that? What abortion room are you leaving? What room stained with the sin of your own hands do you walk out, wipe off, and then pretend like nothing has happened?
If someone were to take an audit of your life, what would it show? Would it show someone trusting in their own works? Thinking that they can scrub away the things that they've done through reading the Bible, going to church? Or would it show someone who, like the widow and like Elijah, followed the call of God and trusting everything to him, knowing that he was a God who would give abundantly back? And I don't mean to say that accusatively, right? I know what mine would show. I know exactly what an audit would show for my own life, and it wouldn't be good. And I can bet that yours wouldn't be good either. But see, our antidote isn't to try harder. It's not to trust harder. It's not to pray harder. It isn't to commit to more Bible reading, though that certainly wouldn't be a bad thing. Rather, our antidote is to lean unflinchingly, unwaveringly into the promises of God, trusting that he is the God who can make even a handful of flour last for years. Trusting that he is the God who provides us with our daily bread. And yet the author of 1 Kings is not content with merely telling us that God is the God who gives us our daily bread, as miraculous as that may be. He wants you to know and he wants I to know even more that God is the giver of life itself. See, something even worse than hunger falls upon the widow and her house. Before, at least, they were dying of starvation together, but now her son, who had his daily bread, had suddenly taken ill. And in fact, it says, he was so ill, he had no breath left in him. Now, well, that's a, we may think, man, he just couldn't breathe that well. No, this boy, as we see, had died. And for a second, it seemed like Baal had won. Right? That Baal was able to reach out and snatch this boy from the one who gives life. And yet, once again, Yahweh proves supreme. Through the intercession of Elijah, Yahweh shows himself to be the one who can call even the dead back from the grave. But as I said earlier, you probably know this, don't you? You'd be quick to confess, I would be quick to confess that yes, God can raise the dead. And yet even with that confession on our lips, our hearts are often so much closer to the widow's response than we'd like to think. Look at what she says here in 17 verse 18. What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. In other words, what did I do to deserve this? So often when faced with the trials that shake us, our immediate thought is not, God, the Lord, giver of life, is over this. He will be faithful. 
as quick as we are to confess that, that is often not our heart's first response. Instead, it is, why me? What did I do to deserve this? We think we've done everything right, so why, why is this happening to me? Philip Roth, in his book, American Pastoral, telling the, the unfolding, the destruction of the life of a man who tried so hard to be good, says this, how could he, with all his carefully calibrated goodness, have known the stakes of living obediently were so high? Right? The, the high stakes of living obediently thinking that if you do all the right things, all the right ways, that your life will be fine. So when death, when chaos, when all the things that assail us in this life come, the only thing you have on my mind is, what did I do to deserve this? And as we see from this passage, that this is not a heart from Yahweh. This is not a heart that is focused on the things of the Lord, but it's rather a heart that comes from Baal. It's that natural voice in man which says, if I do this, I will have a good life. If I pay my dues to God, if I teach Sunday school, if I give my 10%, if I raise my kids right, that he will at least make my life somewhat comfortable. See, the heart that asks, why me, is not the heart trusting in the gospel and the good promises of God, but is instead a heart that trusts on its own ability to do everything right. And yet, even worse than the question of why me, the question that really shows how insidious we can be is the question, why not me? Right? When things all around us are happening and we see others get the good grace of God, when we are stuck with our problems, we ask, why not me? Why did she get cured? Why was their lives spared? Why not me? And as you know, there's no easy answer to that question. But I know some of y'all are asking that question. Why not me? I know it because I ask that question day after day. When things are going hard for me and I look around and people have all the things that I think I want. And I ask, why not me? so often to think that our sufferings are being ignored by God. And yet one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 56.8, says this, You have kept count of my tossing. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? You know, when we are experiencing the trials and suffering of life and we see Others receiving the good grace of God. 
we think that God has abandoned us. And yet this psalm tells us it's quite the opposite. God cares for your sufferings far more than ever you could ever imagine. He puts your tears in a bottle. He keeps track of every one. And Luke 4, 20, Luke 4, chapter 20 through 30, right after Jesus has read from this Isaiah scroll, he mentions this passage right here. And he's talking with them and he tells those in his hometown, says, hey, you're probably thinking that I did all these marvelous works out there, so why not here in my hometown? Uh, that famous proverb, physician, heal thyself. And he mentions this episode with Elijah. He says there were many needy widows with six sons in Israel. And yet the Lord sent Elijah to only one. And his point is that not everyone is going to be the recipient of a miraculous sign or wonder. Not everyone will survive a cancer diagnosis. Not every Christian's children will turn out the way they think. Not all of us will have financial stability our entire lives. However, everyone is offered the good news of the gospel. See, our God, Christian, is not concerned with making sure everything goes your way. He's not interested in giving you merely a comfortable life. Because at the end of it all, a comfortable life will pass away just like everything else. Instead, God is interested in giving you life. Not an easy life. Not a pleasant life. Life itself. That's what he's concerned in giving you. And he's given you this life through Jesus Christ. And here's the marvelous truth we see in Jesus, that God is so concerned with giving you life that he became man himself in order to give it to you. He came and conquered death. He conquered Baal. He conquered sin and sickness. He made his enemies his footstool. And it's in Jesus and Jesus alone that our life is found. And when you find your life in him, you'll find suddenly that your daily bread is taken care of. You'll find that the things you thought you needed, needed with a capital N, were merely gifts from a father who loves you. You'll find that the question asked in despair, why me, what did I do to deserve this, instead becomes a question asked in marvelous delight. Why me? What did I do to deserve this? See, the battle that rages for your soul is not about who can give you a pleasant, contented life. And in fact, our enemy, 
Satan himself would have you think just that way because he knows that that means that when things aren't going to your liking, you'll simply drift from one God to another, seeking whoever can give you that pleasant, contented life. See, every day that you wake up, there is a battle seeking you to convince you that your comfort is found elsewhere than God. And it's in the ins and outs of our lives that we show where we put our trust, where our allegiance lies. And if you spend your time trying to serve that which seems to comfort you most, whether it be bail or money or successful kids or living the American dream, you'll always find it's never enough. You'll always find it's never enough. The flour and oil will run dry. Life will pass away. That American dream you fought so hard for will be blown up by tragedy. But when our trust and allegiance is found only in Jesus Christ, the Lord and the giver of life, the one who calls dead men to life, who offers life and life abundantly, we find that we've been given everything we need. And yet, even if the flour and oil does run dry, even when tragedy strikes, even tragedy as awful as the death of a child, we can say with Habakkuk, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray. Great and heavenly Father, we praise you as the one who gives us life. Praise you as the one whose hand is over all things. Lord, who defeats Satan, who defeats death, who protects us and fights for us. Father, I pray that you would continue to turn our hearts towards you. Lord, may the things that we serve, the things that we do day after day, be a reflection of our heart for you and our worship of you. Father, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.